Over the past several weeks, protests against racial injustice have made headlines around the United States and the world. People of diverse backgrounds are turning out in large numbers in small towns and big cities, incensed by recent high-profile instances where police have killed unarmed black people. For some white Americans, this movement may be prompting them to consider, some for the first time, the white privilege they've benefited from all their lives. What can psychologists' research tell us about how and why white Americans have long been able to ignore and even deny the advantages they enjoy merely for being white? How do white people distance themselves from their privilege in order to preserve it? And do they realize it when they do so? Welcome to Speaking of Psychology, the flagship podcast of the American Psychological Association that explores the connections between psychological science and everyday lives. I'm Kim Mills. Our guest today is Dr. Brian Lowry, a senior associate dean and professor of organizational behavior at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business. Dr. Lowry has studied the psychology of racial privilege in the U.S., including why white Americans are often blind to their privilege and how they react when it's brought to their attention. Recently, he published an op-ed in the Washington Post describing his own experiences of racial discrimination and calling on white Americans to support policies that advance racial justice. Welcome to Speaking of Psychology, Dr. Lowry. Hi, Kim. Thanks for having me. In your op-ed, you discuss the racism you've experienced, including being targeted with racial slurs as a child and being unjustly stopped and searched by police as a teen. You connect those experiences with your research on racial privilege. Why did you feel it was important to write this op-ed now and have this conversation? That's a great question, Kim. Um, I, I wanted people to realize that this is just how common it is. And I think the recent videos and people's um, ability to see what's happening real time um, has has increased that awareness. But I don't know that people have understood until just until recently just how common these kind of experiences are. And I wanted to turn the focus from what's happening to black people in this country to what that means about the experience of of white people in this country. And so that's that's really what I thought was important to write it at this time. Much of your research has been on how white people make sense of the unfair advantages that our society confers on them. In one paper, you talked about the three D's, deny, distance, and dismantle, strategies that white people use to cope when confronted with evidence of white privilege. Can you talk a little bit more about those three D's and the psychology behind each of those behaviors? Um, of course. So the, the first thing is that I think the psychology that drives it is a desire to feel like a good moral person. And in the context of a society that um, explains our outcomes as a function of deservingness, of meritocracy, it challenges our sense of self to believe that we might have benefited from unearned advantages. And in the case of race, um, being the idea that being white has conferred unfair, unfair unearned advantages can be incredibly uncomfortable. So I think that's the psychology that drives what we talk about and the deny, um, distance and dismantle. And so this, what actually happens, how that's managed, um, it can vary. Um, one thing that white, white people do is to deny that they personally benefit from white advantage or white privilege. And this is done in multiple ways. One common way is to highlight hardships they face. Um, and while we think those hardships are legitimate, that everyone faces legitimate, serious hardships, um, hardships don't um, somehow absolve people of privileges or negate the existence of privileges. So that denial 
is it, it's an interesting strategy because it's as if you've gone through something hard in your life that being white, therefore, doesn't confer advantages or privileges. Or it's the idea that privileges or advantages means that life is always easy for you, where that's not at all the, the case. Mm, right. And so that's not the claim that we make. So that's the, the denial side. And the distance one is interesting because the distance allows for the existence of privilege, but simply says that I I don't benefit from it. Right. So it doesn't deny that privilege exists. It doesn't deny that it could exist for other people, but you really kind of separate yourself from other white people and say, I don't personally benefit. Um, where denial is a way of sometimes denying the full existence of privilege. Meaning that nobody has white privilege. Right. So when I, the example I gave was really personal, but you can you also see this, um, the denial in, in, in the way where you, um, you see some people focusing on very successful black people, right? As a way of saying, look, they made it, therefore there isn't racial inequality. Um, so there are other ways to get at that denial of privilege that it doesn't exist at all. And actually in this country, and so I think very recently, um, whites were claiming that they were uh, at least a greater target of discrimination as black Americans are. Um, so there's um, a lot of evidence that whites are uncomfortable with the possibility that white privilege exists at all. And then um, further, that they personally benefit from it. You've done research on how the way that you frame a discussion of racial inequality and privilege affects people's reactions to them. Are there strategies to talk about racial privilege in a way that leads people to have a dismantle reaction rather than a denial or a distancing reaction? It's a good question. Um, when people are willing to accept that privilege exists, there's reason to believe that they might actually support policies that um, dismantle it or work against it. And it, it looks like when they don't, when people feel um, more affirmed in their self, when they feel better about themselves, it's easier to acknowledge the existence of privilege. So that's what we do in a number of our papers. We, we show that when you affirm people's sense of self, when you give them the opportunity to talk about what they value, what's important to them, that they're, um, they have an easier time acknowledging the possibility that privilege exists and that they might benefit from it. Um, and once people acknowledge the existence of privilege, if you can get people to see that it exists, then there's a, a greater likelihood and a um, more, I wouldn't say comfort, but a greater willingness to support policies that dismantle that privilege. Well, let's talk for a moment about the invisibility of white privilege. In a recent research article, you wrote that white people in the United States often don't even need to resort to the denial and distancing strategies we've talked about because of something you call herd invisibility. What does that mean and how does herd invisibility happen? It happens in part because society is, is structured in a way to hide um, the pr privilege that people benefit from. So you can see this in obvious ways, for example, segregation. Um, very few white folks in America actually have black friends, um, and many fewer are um, live in circumstances where they see the disadvantages or the racial inequity in our system. So that that segregation allows for people to be remain blind to their own advantages because they don't see the disadvantages that exist. So they don't see the racial inequities. Um, they blind themselves to the racial inequities simply by the way um, they go about their daily lives, right? They don't have to make a conscious choice to to ignore it so much as it's um, hidden. It's hidden from them by the way the society is set up. So that's one way that you get um, herd invisibility. And then each individual act um, that 
um, white people engage in to deny or distance actually serves um, the broader white community in that if I deny it exists and I create a narrative that it doesn't exist, then that serves you even if you aren't actively denying it yourself. And these are some of the cloaking strategies that you described that people use to address some of the discomfort that they feel. Yes. So uh, again, going back to the underlying psychology, I think there's, when I talk about, we talk about invisibility, it's a interesting and ironic way to talk about it because in reality, it, it, you have to be willfully ignorant not to see racial inequalities in our, in our society. Um, so the cloaking is a way of suggesting that what's happening is willful, but it doesn't require each individual person to participate at all times, right? So that's the, the herd immunity part or the herd invisibility part, rather. If enough people engage in it, then it hides it. It allows, it allows an act of hiding from everyone. But it really is, this is what's, I think, often hard to convey, that it really is an act of hiding. It's not, it's not, it's not that it can't be seen because the water we swim in, and that's sometimes how it's talked about. From my perspective, it's, the disparities are so great um, so stark and so easily um, accessible that there really has to be some process in place to put, um, to allow us to not see it, that we have to engage in some psychological gymnastics um, as a society to deny its existence. Um, and I think that's probably, um, well, not probably for white people, it's there's discomfort when that when they're not allowed to do that. And for black people and other people in, uh, of color, it's um, it can be enraging to see people engage in this these mental gymnastics in a way that allows them to ignore the pain of, say, the black community or um, other communities of color. Is the fact that so many white people are joining the protests evidence that at least some white Americans are engaged in dismantling, even if they don't know that's what they're doing? I certainly hope so. Um, I should just say that I don't, I don't personally tend toward optimism. Um, <laughs> and some of that I think is, is realism. Like I, I, the history of the United States is um, littered with movements that in the moment seemed, um, uh, seemed like they were g gaining traction, but there's uh, inevitably been a backlash to those movements. Um, and that backlash tends to come when when you move beyond simple the simply the sense of moral benefit that people have from pointing out the pain that other people experience to the necessary work of actually changing the system, which comes at a, a personal cost. So the question will be, when it comes at a personal cost, will the energy that we see now in the streets remain? And those personal costs mean giving up some of the privilege, right? I mean, you have to share some of the pie. Yes, but I, I think that um, I think it may be hard for white people to fully understand the benefits of being white in the society. They can see it's easier to see the pain that people of color experience um, and black folks in particular right now experience. I think it's harder to internalize and accept the degree of privileges that that are enjoyed uh, as a function of the system. And the question I think will be. Um, when we really move towards trying to produce equity, uh, are people going to be willing to give up those privileges? My, my sense and in some of my research, 
some of my research, I find that people <laughs> can both acknowledge the existence of inequity, see that a particular policy will reduce the differences that are associated with that inequity, and honestly feel as if it's unjust to support those policies, um, in part because people separate the disadvantages that some groups face, like the disadvantages that black, black people endure and the advantages enjoyed by whites, they separate those things. And they say like, let's just eliminate those disadvantages. But when they start to experience a cost themselves, they find that unfair, unjust. They don't understand why they should have to pay a price for someone else's, for the elimination of someone else's disadvantages. So in concrete terms, what is it that white people need to do to fully dismantle white privilege? <laughs> um, that's a really good question. Um, some of it is um, supporting policies that actually redistribute resources. Um, that, that would be a big one. Um, it would be accepting and um, accepting that the system of, say, education in this country is fundamentally, I, I personally believe, fundamentally unjust and working on policies that push back against things like funding schools through property taxes, which would have a, an effect on people's property values, perhaps short term. Um, I, I think those just with those two things alone, I would say, like, let's let's start there and see how it goes. I would be uh, also thinking about not understanding that um, diversifying organizations is not letting in unqualified applicants. But in fact, um, there's when you have the kind of privileges that we've had now, when you've not really allowed the full pool of people to um, have access to opportunities, the people who are really benefiting from affirmative action are the people in the jobs right now. Like uh, understanding that and accepting that as a possibility. I mean, these are um, things that I think are going to be really tough and, and time will tell that people are really gonna, uh, willing to go there um, after the, the energy of just the, the out, outrage over the deaths of black people at the hands of police passes. The U.S. Census Bureau has projected that America's white population will drop below 50 percent in 2045 and that the nation will reach majority minority status. In your view, will that have any impact on the notion of white privilege? Uh, that's a good question. Well, it already the the um, those projections already do right. So there's research done by say Jennifer Richardson, uh, um, an incredible social psychologist at Yale, that shows that um, when you present people with that information, whites often become um, threatened and respond in um, a way to try to maintain the privileges they have. Um, when that actually comes to pass, I think if we haven't rectify the deep inequalities in the society right now, we're going to um, be in a really tough situation where you will have the vast majority of the political and economic power in the hands of a minority. Um, and it's not as if that, ha that doesn't exist in other places, but I think it, that is a, a dangerous place to be. And I think it's possible that there's nothing that suggests that simply the shift in the, demo the demographics of the country will necessarily eliminate the privileges associated with race. And, and I think people will, I, I anticipate people will try to hold on to their advantages um, and maybe even more tightly as they start to see them challenged. Is the tide toward pulling down Confederate monuments and renaming places that were named for Confederate generals, is that helpful in, in the scheme of things or is that just something that people are doing to feel good? Um, it's a good question. I, 
what do I think about that? I think that for people of color, it's important um, symbolically. It's in, important in terms of people's sense of comfort in their their own physical space. I think that that symbolism for white folks is also important by itself. Does it change much? I don't think so. Um, but I don't I don't know that I would um, label it just a, a feel good um, action. I, I think there's the symbolism can be important and is meaningful. And I think that pulling down icons of what I would call white superiority, because a lot of those monuments were put up much after the you know decades after the Civil War as a way of reasserting white superiority. Pulling that down is symbolic and important, but that's not going to create racial equity. Um, the American Psychological Association just released a poll that found a large majority of Americans, 72 percent, believe our country is at the lowest point they have ever observed. It also found that 71 percent said police violence toward minorities is a significant source of stress that they're feeling. Mm -hmm. At the same time, just over two thirds said the current movement against systemic racism and police brutality is going to lead to meaningful change in America. Given the work that you've done looking at white privilege and racism, how much credence do you give to those numbers? Um, and the meaning, do I take seriously that people are concerned about the state of the country right now? And that they really feel that this is going to lead to meaningful change? Um, I think that people are concerned right now. I think when you see the disruption in systems, that causes legitimate concern. Um, I think that people are... I think that people really do believe things are going to change. Um, I think that there's likely to be at some point the declaration of victory. Um, how seriously do I, do I think that victory will be real? Um, that's harder to say. I'm, I'm less optimistic about that. So I, I believe the numbers in terms of um, people reporting, honestly, their experience right now. Um, I think that the mechanisms in this country that are designed to maintain the status quo are incredibly powerful. Um, and I think that people can engage in behaviors that maintain the status quo um, and actually feel moral while doing it. Right? I think who doesn't want to take care of their child, who doesn't want to give their child all the advantages they can. And if we just do that, we'll maintain the status quo. Um, so I think that the amount of work it will take to radically shift the racial hierarchy in this country is vast. And I, and while I, I am heartened by the demonstrations and protests, um, my sense of how much further we would need to go is such that, um, my, any optimism, I any optimism I have is incredibly guarded right now. What further research are you planning on the topic of white privilege? What do we still need to learn? Oh, I think we need to learn uh, quite a bit. I Right now, my research is um, moving a little bit. So I'm, I'm really interested in how existential concerns, how we understand ourselves and how we understand ourselves socially in groups um, drives our behavior. And that includes the inner group behavior that, you know, what it means to be a black person or a white person, um, what it means to be American, how that drives our um, or creates our sense of self. 
um, and a desire to jealously guard that self, how that basic existential need is driving many of our behaviors. That's kind of where I am now. Um, I, I have a number of students who continue to work on white privilege in particular. Um, but honestly, my, my interests are um, now moving more towards the how, how our deep existential needs are driving um, our intergroup behavior. How does this topic go over with students? Do you find a lot of resistance when you talk about it in the classroom? That's a good question. I, um, I don't talk about this often in the classroom, honestly. So what I, I spend most when I'm in the classroom, what I do is work on leadership. Um, and now as a senior associate dean, I, I spend even less time in the classroom. So I do often stand in front of students and talk about um, their responsibilities. So working at Stanford, our students are um, both in, incredibly talented and also incredibly privileged, um, as am I and everyone else associated with um, the, uh, this Stanford as an academic institution and many other um, really um, elite and um, high status academic institutions. And in front of those groups, what I say is when we behave, the decisions we make affect many other people. And it's very easy to focus on how our decisions affect our outcomes, what it means about our career, what it means about our family, um, and lose sight of the fact that from our perch, those decisions actually affect many people's lives. Um, And so I don't I don't talk in particular about race, but what I try to impress upon people in positions of power is that if we lose sight of the consequences of our behavior on other people, we, we will likely end up um, supporting existing inequities, right? Exacerbating existing inequities, right? It doesn't, it doesn't require us to be bad people or racist. It just requires us to continue to go along with the system as it is and continue to try to maximize our own outcomes. And that I, I think it's incumbent upon us to do more than that. And so that's when I talk with students, I, that's the message I give them. And I don't I don't find a lot of resistance to that because, again, people want to see themselves as good and moral people. So I think it's important to convey to them what that actually requires of them. And I think often we don't do that. Um, we focus so much on the individual individual racism or individual advancement or whatever that we lose sight of the collective and our our, our collective responsibility in the system. Um, and and also this is what in the, going back to the Washington Post piece there, if you if you are part of a corrupt system, you yourself are going to be corrupted. Right. So if you want to maintain or elevate yourself, then it's incumbent upon you to push against um, the corruption of the system you you live in. I think you've given us a lot to think about, Dr. Lowry. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. The American Psychological Association has resources available on our website on race, racism, and the fight for racial justice. Visit us at apa.org. You can also find previous episodes of Speaking of Psychology on our website at speakingofpsychology.org. And you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information on Dr. Lowry's work, visit the Stanford University Graduate School of Business website. You can also follow him on Twitter at at Brian Lowry, PhD. If you have comments or ideas for future podcasts, email us at speakingofpsychology at apa.org. That's speakingofpsychology, all one word, 
at apa.org. Speaking of Psychology is produced by Lee Weinerman. The editor and sound engineer is Chris Kondayan. Thank you for listening. For the American Psychological Association, I'm Kim Mills. Thank you.